This episode of Behind the Bots is brought to you by Fingertech Robotics, North America's top manufacturer of combat robotics parts. If you're interested in building your first combat robot, check out Fingertech's Viper Kit, which includes everything you need to build a fully functional, competitive ant weight. Fingertech also carries a complete line of wheels, hubs, motors, and other components if you want to build a bot from the ground up. Check them out online at www.fingertechrobotics.com. rooms as we practice social distancing this is behind the bots the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind battle bots i'm chris i'm luke and i'm Lindsay. and today on the podcast our interview with lockjaw captain donald hudson kyle will join us a little later in the hour for our interview with donald we'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of robots around the world if you like our show please rate and review us on apple podcasts google play Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Behind the Bots. And if you like what you hear, we hope you do, please tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have 13 news items for you today. First up, let's start with an update to a continuing story. Nine additional bots have confirmed they will be competing on the 2020 season of BattleBots, which will begin filming on October 2nd in Long Beach, California. In alphabetical order, those bots are Aegis, Extinguisher, Gigabyte, Hydra, Lockjaw, Malice, Pain Train, P1, and Slamo. That means there are now 29 bots that have confirmed so far, out of the 63 robots that BattleBots says could potentially be competing this year. With the deadline to begin shipping bots to the competition coming up very soon, we expect to see even more bot reveals in the week ahead. I want to focus on one new robot in particular, Pain Train. This bot is being built by New York City-based Team Shreddit, which competes on the local Insectweight circuit with the incredibly successful Beetleweight Shreddit Bro. In mid-July, Shreddit Bro took home its second consecutive first-place finish at Norwalk Havoc earning Captain Evan Arias $2,000 and two golden dumpsters. This past week, Evan opened up a new GoFundMe page with the goal of raising $8,500 toward the build. Pain Train will feature a 55-pound egg beater drum on a design that resembles Shredded Bro. Duck Captain Hal Rucker this week published two CAD renderings of the latest version of his bot, which still hasn't publicly confirmed that it's competing on the 2020 season of the show. The new renderings show a dramatically redesigned invertible robot with four exposed wheels and a redesigned beak that now opens and closes. This thing looks so beautiful. I encourage you to check out the photos on Facebook. Balesburg Captain Earl Pankos III teased his fans on Facebook this week with video of the team picking up a pallet of metal parts and welding them together into something that resembles a heavyweight robot. Earl has still not publicly confirmed whether Balespear will be competing in 2020. On over to Massachusetts, where the team behind the ultra-powerful overhead bar spinner Bloodsport showed off their new thick bar, which weighs in at 70 pounds and spins at nearly 2,000 RPMs at a tip speed of 250 miles per hour. 
There is an incredible amount of kinetic energy in this weapon, which the team showed by strapping a GoPro to the top of the bot and destroying an entire home office setup circa 2003, vaporizing a PC monitor and printer in an abandoned parking lot. We'll include video of the weapons test in this week's show notes. Lindsay, I know that you are our resident Bloodsport fan. I mean, we're all obviously big fans of Bloodsport. We really love Justin Marple's work. Um, but uh, but this video must have given you a special thrill this week, uh, really watching the uh, the thick bar do its work. It's, it's I'm sorry. I'm sorry to jump in, but it's actually thick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me let me say that again. Uh, the thick bar. <laughs> <laughs> I am uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it's, it's very exciting. Uh, also because I feel like it combines two of my favorite things, which is BattleBots slash Bloodsport. And then like the iconic scene of film all time, uh, uh, the scene from Office Space. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that I, I they love. Should, they should have said it to like, damn, it feels good to be a, a gangster. Probably some copyright issues there. But... I see. That's a good point. <laughs> but, um. Yeah, I mean, I always love to see office equipment, especially printers, just obliterated. Um, so, no, that was super fun. And I am sad that I won't be able to get the chance to see Bloodsport do exactly that to Bite Force this year. Uh, sorry, Paul. <laughs> but um, it's, it's very exciting, and I'm really looking forward to seeing them, uh, you know, bring that same energy to the Battle Box this year. I watched this entire video. It is excellent. Uh, there's these kind of slow motion replays of these bits of office equipment just being flung out across this abandoned parking lot, this empty parking lot, and really getting a huge amount of air, you know, kind of uh, landing all over the place. Um, there was also kind of like this uh, this close call where the printer like exploded and the, the ink kind of went rocketing toward the... Uh, just this little berm that the uh, the team was was hiding behind and uh, kind of sprayed <laughs> sprayed them with ink. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I love it. I'm here for it. Um, and I, I don't know, like I, I think I, I feel like a little weird as uh, you know, like a environmentalist <laughs> about about us <laughs> destroying pieces of glass and plastic, you know. Uh, but I guess I guess I don't know what's what's a better object? What's a more environmentally friendly object that we could destroy in the future? I mean, who knows? Ooh, Blocks that's... of ice, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll have to send that in as a as a recommendation. The patriarchy. That's good. The team behind Double Jeopardy spent the weekend doing final assembly on their Canon bot, posting a video of them installing the bot's drivetrain, electronics, Canon mounts, and body panels. The new robot will have three really big improvements this season, a Canon that's mounted lower on the bot, three shots, and a camera system that will allow weapons operator Bryce Woolley to see a live bot's eye view of what the Canon is pointed at. The beefy shell spinner Gigabyte is dropping its classic multicolored paint scheme this season in favor of a paint job that's very on brand for 2020, all black and covered in flames. Yeah. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're, we're taking uh, BattleBots to Flavortown. <laughs> Do you think this is maybe a, a Guy Fieri, uh, Guy Fieri inspired paint job, Chris? Mm. 
I can only imagine that while they were uh, spray painting a, um, uh, a, a flame job onto Gigabyte that they were listening to Who Let the Dogs Out. <laughs> Good, yeah. <laughs> um, it is nice to know that Gigabyte is bringing a bot to the competition that fully illustrates the current world in which we live. <laughs> oh, yeah, everything's on fire. On fire and... And whatever's not on fire is just dark. Yeah, (laughs) bleak. It's bleak. 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 Like, their chances of winning the show. Oh. Oh. Oh, I gotta go lay down. (laughs) That was darker than that paint job. (laughs) The team behind the new casino-themed Las Vegas-based rookie heavyweight jackpot spent the week assembling two complete chassis and showed off its 57-pound weapon, a two-bladed vertical spinner that's mounted high on the bot. The team says it's also bringing a 73-pound disc that packs three times the kinetic energy of its lighter weapon. Kraken Captain Matt Spurk this week showed off photos of his bot's new armor, emblazoned with shiny holographic scales meant to look like an underwater animal. The team says that it will reveal the full bot soon. Team Sawblaze is showing off this season's diamond blades made by Cutter's Edge. The company's black diamond blade is more commonly used by firefighters to cut through cars using rescue saws. Sawblaze Captain Jameson Go modified the black diamond blade to fit the end of his robot's articulated saw to cut through AR steel and hard ox. The team says they sent this season's blades off to Powder River Precision, who modified the blades to fit the bot's weapon hubs. The compact little orange puncher bot Tantrum this week gave fans their first look at the bot's new weapon, a vertical drum that moves back and forth on a rail and apparently shoots fire. This season, the weapon will be powered by a hub motor, which should help with reliability. Team Wayachi is giving Tombstone a run for its money in the cart department. The team has built a brand new custom hydraulic lift for Hydra that allows the team to lift and spin the robot with ease, making it easier to work on. Separately, Team Wayachi this week posted video of Hydra launching a 250-pound object 16 feet in the air. And finally, before we close out this week's news, I wanted to share a really cool, safe, and socially distant combat robotics event happening this Saturday in Kokomo, Indiana, and live-streamed over Twitch. The fifth annual Robot Fight Night, organized by robot components manufacturer AndyMark. This is a 30-pound combat event with a twist. All robot chassis need to be made with cardboard. Check out the live stream this weekend at www.twitch.tv slash andymarkinc. And that's it for this week's news. After the break, our interview with Donald Hudson, captain of Lockjaw. This week on the podcast, we have a very special guest, Lockjaw Captain Donald Hudson. Donald has competed in every season of BattleBots to date and holds six giant nuts for his robots Dissector, Tazbot, and Carcass 2. He's also competed with Root Canal in the 2009 season. He returned to the reboot of BattleBots in 2015 with fan favorite bot Lockjaw, the fully invertible classic disc spinner slash lifter that earned Donald a giant bolt as the winner of the 2018 Desperado Tournament. Outside of BattleBots, Donald is the co-founder and CTO of Modal AI, a San Diego-based startup that makes AI systems for drones. 
We're looking forward to getting into all of these topics in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, Donald. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So it's an honor. You guys do uh, great work for promoting this sport. And I just, I thank you for that. Well, thank you for being on. I think I told you when I asked you if you would come on, uh, we, we did not feel cool enough to talk to you until recently. So we're really glad that you decided to come on with us and hang out and talk about everything. You're not going to tell me I'm the old guy again and that you didn't expect me to come back, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, all right. So first of all, we like to kind of get into life outside of BattleBots. So can you tell us just kind of what an average day in the life of Donald Hudson is? Uh, well, um, we always get up early. I find uh, that's always the best time with clarity for some reason. I always go to bed thinking about what I got to do the next day. And that, that's always made me very productive. Um, but it always starts um, with, uh, you know, a little bit of CAD design. I seem to always have something on the computer, both for work and, of course, now for uh, the battle bus season here. Um, but, it, you know, I'm, I'm very much uh, a SolidWorks um, CAD designer. And uh, that's kind of the, the bread and butter of my work. But... Um, you know, it, it usually involves interacting with, uh, you know, I think we're up to 15 employees at Modal AI now. And and I find that that really has taken a lot of change in my world. You know, I, I'm constantly, you know, I have people that, that do CAD work and do software. And the more people you get, the more answers you got to have. <laughs> so, yep. So, uh, so speaking of modal AI, can you tell us a little bit about the startup? I mean, we've been reading into it and looking into kind of your work. It's super fascinating. So kind of give us a, an overview of modal AI, what you do and, uh, you know, what your general client base is. Yeah, yeah. And it's probably good for these, these listeners who, who just see me as a guy who's, who's building Lockjaws these years to realize that I'm one of the guys in the sport that didn't start in robotics and I didn't have an engineering degree, right? I started in the medical field and um, quickly, you know, by joining uh, BattleBots, people see me at the pits and offered me a job doing uh, machine learning for a place called the Neurosciences Institute. So basically I spent, you know, maybe seven years in the medical field as a rehab technology specialist, you know, kind of the MacGyver of uh, people with disabilities. Um, and and that, that was, you know, really introducing me to a lot of robotics um, mechanisms and mechatronics and electronics. But um, when I got the job at the Neurosciences Institute, um, I was there and I worked under a Nobel laureate by the name of Dr. Gerald Edelman. And uh, he's, he's since passed away, but he just one of the most brilliant guys, uh, very hardcore New York guy, but he, he got his Nobel Prize for antibodies, discovery of antibodies. And uh, my day there was just changed by BattleBots. The minute I got a job as a real robotics engineer, um, you know, it all just cascaded from there because BattleBots did the one thing. It, it made me want to learn more, you know? It's like I could not gather enough information fast enough to figure out how to build a better version of TASBOT. <laughs> you know, back then I was like, oh my God, it's a great opportunity. I'm having so much fun doing this. This is that job I want to do. So now I want to learn more. And uh, for those nine years, uh, it escalated into all kinds of advanced mechatronic designs, everything from like 32 axis apes to 
what I'll call wheeled dogs, um, and then eventually into some government drones. And then at the end of that nine years, I ended up uh, getting picked up by Qualcomm from the CTO there, just basically directly took me, put me in Qualcomm research, which for a kind of gunshot, you know, type of engineer like myself, it's kind of unheard of, but, um, you know, uh, it was, it was a great move for me as well because they wanted to showcase what they could do in robotics and they needed kind of the designs to kind of go along with it. So I found a partnership with at that point, 40 uh, software engineers um, were about the, the peak of our project over those five years. And that's really where modal AI started to come in because at that point I was so bent on it not being about the robot but being about the perception and the communication. And so I built Qualcomm all these cool dragons and drones with tank treads, and we would do every CES we did a show. So that was my, my intro into a $120 billion company and, and kind of uh, uh, you know trying to do um, those type of advanced robotics with all the latest processing and software. And so, I, I, it became a new passion for me to uh, build the smallest, most perceptual robots, and those became drones. Um, I remember laughing when they said that uh, they wanted to do drones, and, and, and it was really so people could take selfies. For me as an engineer, it's almost an insult. You know, I'm like, a selfie? All this technology to see obstacles, uh, visual odometry, 3D map building, and this is so you could take a picture of yourself? Well you know, welcome to the real wide world. Sometimes what we want to build as an engineer, I want to build walking robots, but they're like, why? No one uses them yet. I'm like, fair point, right? We gotta, you got to build something that people want. And so what we found was that that, that really fueled um, a direction for robotics. It fueled small. It fueled advanced onboard processing. And then anybody who was going to pay extra money for a robot to pay, say, for 5G, a, a closed line for communication, which is what we do now, um, you know, no, no spectrum, right, was going to have to have a robot that did something complicated. And so it became a perfect endeavor, communication and perception. And so we did that in all of our CES demos. We, we always showed that even ahead of DJI, our drones that we built were the first ones to have stereo and depth map and obstacle avoidance before DJI actually showed. So I'm very quite proud of that actually, because I was able to race ahead of some of those giants. Um, and then, so what that did is that set everything in motion. And then of course, as the company started to kind of change its tune based on what I'll say many reasons, um, they were very open armed about the opportunity for uh, Chad Sweet, the um, uh, you know this, uh, the CEO of the company now, uh, and he was the uh, the lead of our software at the time, our project manager. Um, they basically gave us all the IP and everything we needed to go out on our own. And I just want to say that's kind of a result of us doing. You know, we all wonder if our our hobbies and our day jobs will ever pay out. And and all I can say to that point is I I haven't really stopped. <laughs> since that building every toy I've ever wanted to build. So you build, so is there any like 
mass produced drone products now that have a piece of kind of the technology you guys developed before or is well, this all yeah. pretty specialized um well yes i mean obviously we want to we, we've tried to be in the habit of not building the drones but but providing the boards and the technology that we invented while we were at Qualcomm, but making it better. We basically add more cameras, sensors, we optimize all the software because most people think it's just a matter of plugging in cameras, but we use what's called MIPI connections to our cameras for high-speed processing of, of, of very complex data. And then we do a lot of it on board so that it can be very reactive in its world. and and and. You know, to be fair, GPS just is not enough indoors. So a lot of my robots are very small and are drones, vehicles, we call them. And they are always have some form of visual obstacle avoidance, rather it be stereo or small forms of like connect sensors that are like what we call them time of flights. Um, so we always have some form of obstacle avoidance. And then our, our real bread and butter is our, our VIO. And if you don't have good GPS or you're flying indoors or even flying your drone next to metal, everybody knows your GPS just won't get you close enough uh, and you're not gonna avoid the trees. So really we're all kind of back at the same robotic questions, which is how can a robot be totally self-sufficient? We tell it to land. It can find an object to land on and not land in the water, not hit a tree, not hit a wire. I'm still after that, that holy grail of uh, complete autonomy. And I think that's really what our government work wants, which is to be fair, a majority of our customers now is, is uh, groups like the DOD. Um, you know, it, there's a number of folks I can, I, you know, I can't really mention, but they're my primary customer. Uh, we wanna have American drones made here and we want to have the ability to upgrade them and make changes and not feel funny about it being done overseas. Um, so that's a that's a definitely countrywide effort right now for all of robotics. And so most of our customers that are using our boards are big drone companies and they're putting our boards and our software in their drones. Um, however, you can go on an online website and order all of our reference designs, which are based off of cheap designs, allows you to put the board in your drone, make your own stereo mounts. Uh, I like to say robots design themselves when it really comes down to it. You got to give people the right set of tools um, to, uh, to add those sensors. And it's very important that they're dampened and in the right spot, and, you know, so there's, there's some science to it. And um, yeah, we have plenty of customers out there and we have plenty of products on board. If you go to modal AI, you can find a whole web store and kits and immediately get flying with some of our technology. So I'd like to kind of make the leap over to your first days in combat robotics. Oof, way back. Way back. So can you tell us a little bit about how you heard about the sport and what made you decide to get involved? Um, yeah, it was pretty funny. I was, at that time, believe it or not, I was having companies build my own FPV trainer, transmitters out of UHF. And I would pay people to build them for black and white. And I would buy, this is back in 1996, long time. And I would buy um, uh, high eight video cameras. I would gut them, remote the uh, color cameras so that they could record on board. 
and I build a slew of glider camps. So I pretty much grew up as a hobby flying remote control gliders, very high performance ones on the edge of the cliffs. I probably built a hundred scratch built what we called pitcherons. And then I crammed cameras in them way back then and made my roommates steer the black and white camera. And I would chase hang gliders and just try and get the footage. Okay. And I remember at that time thinking, God, this is, you know, my friends would laugh at me. They're like, you know, these are little drones. People are building big autonomous robots. Why would you want a little drone, a little, a glider, you know, as a drone? And um, it was a very specific time for me because I just had a crash at Torrey Pines. And I think the last video on my website is, is actually on there of me inverted in Torrey Pines crashing upside down. And it was a bummer. And I remember looking up on a show called uh, Amazing America. Oh, I forget it. And there was Mark Satrakian and Peter Abramson uh, playing in Robot Wars. And I remember just it stopping me. And I thought, oh, my God, they built a competition for me. <laughs> it's like <laughs> my, next, my next evolution of, of, of remote control stuff was definitely headed towards robots already and drones uh, and, and autonomous glider cams and all that was all part of it. And um, I thought, wow, that's amazing. I immediately looked it up. And in 30 days, I built Tazbot and went to the event cold and had my first match um, was against uh, Mark Satrakian. <laughs> How about that's that? That's awesome. Is that enough to draw you in? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It <laughs> wasn't as good. Um, well, here's what I learned. I learned that at a, that that it was kind of what I really wanted out of building stuff. I was a builder. I was not going to be interested in stuff I could build or, or play with that was already built. I, I just needed to build stuff. That's just who I was. And when I went there and I realized that everybody there that was being touted for their success was because they tried a different design. It was the first time I went to an event where people were booed if they built something boring <laughs> and cheered if they lost with something cool. And right then I realized I knew where I was. It was, it was a group of people that were more interested than in, in, in impressing each other. And I still think to this day that actually is kind of what happens. We all show up and we can't wait to see the other robots. We can't, we're terrified but we just can't wait to see what everybody builds, what they come up with. And it sets in, in process that, that, that process of evolution of what we'll have to prepare for. We just have no idea, right? So it keeps it fun, keeps it fresh. But I did in uh, that very first 1996 battle, I barely beat Mike's, Mark Shatraken. And if you watch the video, which I'm sure is still out there, and it, I'm sure it's not that old, it's in color, but small. Okay, <laughs> uh, you can see that Tazbot, as as Master raises up, I graze past his his opening in his chest and just chop his wires. Okay, but this is the kind of drama that I think people look for: is this story of how you won or how you lost. Yep. We never really care if we lose, just as long as it's freaking dramatic, and we can tell people about it. And and, uh, and that was definitely one of those moments. You know, I was all jazzed about it. Later, I learned that it was a lucky shot to his wires. And, I, you know, back then we could hold them and stop them, which Tazbot was fit for. 
but he was a terrifying robot. Mark it builds the craziest things there are. And, um, and then I think my next match, it was double elimination, was against Law Machine. And, you know, Trey and uh, Greg Munson, the founders of BattleBots, whipped my ass. So that was my answer to BattleBots, was some of the, the top people, you know, telling me what it was about, you know, quite frankly. And um, I, just, I just fell in love with the fact that I, I couldn't wait to go home and, and build something else. So, that so we have... Game. A first listener question for you that is going to be a really great test of your long-term memory. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Logan D. Mackey asks, how much did your first robot cost to build? Um, gosh, uh, Tazbot was built out of 300 bucks, not including <laughs> the radio. I mean, you already I, had that. Yeah, yeah, we, we had to buy the radio, right? I literally had in my plan what I thought, this is what every engineer does when they build a robot. They get this giddy little look on their face, which I'm sure I had, about what would be the coolest thing if you could build it. And for me, I held a baseball bat in my hand and I go, I just want to follow through with this bat. And uh, I just remember thinking to myself, well, how can I do this? I go, well, I need to buy gear motors. And I had a buddy of mine, um, uh, Rich Reed, from uh, which I knew from the medical industry, um, you know, they rebuilt uh, gear motors for the medical industry, and he he donated and rebuilt some broken gearboxes for me. I'm not kidding you. He was my first sponsor, NPC Robotics, which is, <laughs> wasn't robotics at the time. He became robotics after this. Uh, he 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 let me send the motors back. He replaced all the gears, gave me some extras. I, I welded a frame up from basic angle iron and steel, diamond plate. I all hand bent it, MIG welded it. Um, I built my own commutator plate out of copper rings. Um, I, I took a motor apart to use the brushes for the commutator on a big disc, which was plastic. And um, I remember uh, shock absorbing the whole knuckle assembly for Tazbot because I knew I wanted to not slow the motor down. I wanted a bit to be able to bend and follow through. And uh, so it was a pretty basic construction for the robot. Uh, the very first one was definitely dirt cheap, almost free. So I want to go into our next listener co uh, question from Matthew Cahoy. Okay. Uh, he writes, Donald is literally a serious hero for my childhood. All of your bots have always had a cool look. Do you start designing with a look in mind or do you make something blocky and then refine it to make it look cool? I, I, I have the same question. You seem to hate right angles. <laughs> well, okay. I'll be fair. That question about the angled wheels and the angles and stuff, it's actually a pretty normal engineering question. The strongest shape in engineering is a triangle. Hands down. So if you can include triangles in your design instead of square or parallelograms, you get more strength. Um, another inherent reason why the wheels are angled is because it takes the magnets and lowers them. And instead of the frame being 50-50, a small air gap on top and a small on the bottom, I, I get to use a bigger space above and all my weight is lower. Okay. But there's actually two other reasons. Um, if you take a, a, a set of robots and you put them and you look straight down on the top, 
and you were pushed up against the side of an arena with a four-wheel drive robot or around or two-wheel drive, you would find that the wheels could be stuck against the railing. Right? The foot yep. of the wheel, when it touches the railing, is square. But when you angle them, it's a radius. So it makes me be able to turn and get away easier. Yeah, I can I can be pushed against the wall, but I can um, have a little bit more torque and maneuverability uh, to get away. Um, and then the other thing is, if you were to take a three-inch tire and lay it on the ground, its footprint will be about this wide, you know, a tiny bit. If you lay the wheel over at 10 or 15 degrees, which is what all the robots have, you get a wider footprint out of your rubber and vertical weapons have to reach further to get to the axle and the hub. See, all makes sense, doesn't it? It actually makes a lot of sense. I never thought about it that way. I honestly thought it was an aesthetic choice. That's really cool. Well, I kept doing it. It's, 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 uh, it, it has its invertibility issues, but from my standpoint, I'd rather have, you know, 60, maybe 70% of my effort in a low profile, low center of gravity, harder to tip over um, layout. And then I also like that when I fall on those walls, uh, wheels, they, they hit my gearboxes differently too. There's a number of reasons, actually. <laughs> I, won't <laughs> all of them. I gave you enough to let you know why. Definitely. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving on to a question about a robot with no wheels. Um, Mike Stropkovic, who runs a really excellent robot, a combat robotics YouTube channel called Mr. Psycho, asks, right. when can we see Gear Crow again? That robot deserves to be on TV. And I agree. I know. I know. That was... If you look back at how that robot was created before me showing it at 2009, uh, at the end of 2002, I think I was doing, I felt pretty good about my contribution to the sport. And sponsors, I probably at that time, I think I had the most sponsors. People were giving me CNC machines. And, and I thought to myself, what better thing to do with these great tools that were given to me than to build something with this new CNC and I machined all the gears. I made sure the robot was uh, fully cantilevered in a way that it could do cartwheels in all directions. Again, an invertible walker. It could roll to the sides cartwheel wise. It can roll forwards cartwheel wise, all as separate modules. I really loved the robot. However, the part I didn't realize was how hard it was gonna be to work with a 900 pound machine. About three weeks into doing it, I had already put holes in my garage floor that were about eight inches deep. <laughs> Every time it walked or stood up, it would move itself across my garage about six feet. And it took a half hour with the cherry picker to bring it back. Okay, It almost walked through the, the, garage, the, the CNC machine. It fell into it one time. And I think I realized that um, in order to really do that, the hardest part wasn't just building the first one. It was having the backup parts and having a forklift in a big area to see it done. And I think I personally, I think I, I built it too heavy. <laughs> it was, <laughs> this is 900 pounds. I mean, it was literally dissector with 300 pound legs. All wow. The other right? and, it, and it had a tail and I, I am still, it's sitting here. Um, let's see if I could show you what it looks like now. I got to make sure I don't have anything else. There's no video. There's the body of it. 
I know you probably don't have your camera feed, so those that do. Wow. There's, uh, it's sitting on a crate with the, the only thing I've removed now is the jaws and the legs, but it's, you know, I'd like to think it's coming. Um, I ended up building after that some bigger humanoids, which I call carbide. And this is a full 22 axis humanoid. Um, and I fought my son with lightsabers on that one, but <laughs> you know, this effort of moving towards legs is absolutely a passion of mine. I, a matter of fact, I just can't figure out why I can't convince people to give me enough money to do it. Right. I've shown people enough signs that it's possible. Mark Satrakian has clearly shown people there's enough signs that this can be done, but we can't build one or two. We, we gotta have backups to do the real competition. Yeah. And I feel like I'm, I'm just waiting for people to, to want that enough because it's expensive. You know, it's, it's a lot more than a regular battle bot. Yeah. I mean, I could only imagine. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Someday on Gear Crow. Someday. Oh, that would be really cool. Um, all right. So Nick Volcano asks a three-part question. First, Dissector is my favorite robot of all time. And I'm yeah. curious if it's laying around somewhere or if there's parts of it floating around in different bots. No. Um, interesting note. All of my robots are all complete. Every single one. Uh, I think only one robot has ever been fully destroyed and I never put it back. It was a my first lightweight robot called Propane, and um, yeah, it it got obliterated. But I try not to rob them. Um, I'll pull out electronics and stuff, but that's actually been my biggest problem. I think I counted. I think I'm close to like 15 full blown battle bots that I've built, and then I, I find ways to store them in crates. I I, I ran out of room in the garage, so. You won't find them on some big uh, shelf somewhere. But or I can mount them to the wall like some people do. Well, I have Dissector is actually part of this shelf. Um, just so you don't think I'm, you know. Oh, wow. You can, you can see it, but that, uh, there he is. All complete. Hammers and all. Still works. Has batteries in it which I probably shouldn't. But, um, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Tazbot uh, is, uh, does have its head separated, which I wouldn't want to show you that. It might freak people out. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick's second question, of all the bots you've competed with over the years, which do you have the fondest memory, memories of and which has been your favorite to use in fights? I still had the most fun with Tazbot. I mean, I've, I've had numerous people ask me why I don't bring it back. And um, there's things, obviously, I really liked about it. Um, I always wanted to get back to it. But it's the funnest one to drive. Because when you drive a robot that has a spherical kind of omni presence to it, um, I don't know. It's fun. It's challenging to drive. And uh I, I thought it had many attributes that I wish I still had in some of the robots today. Uh, the ability to sneak under the side of robots is, was, if you ask the Razor boys, quite, quite surprising. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you might have answered this already, but Nick's third part of his question is, which of your, um, of your other bots do you think would fare best in the current robot combat scene? 
If you were forced to retire Lockjaw and bring back an older bot, which one do you think would have the best chance of winning? Um, gosh, winning's a different story, isn't it? Uh, there's <laughs> you know, you want to have something new and cool. Uh, you know, I think, I think definitely Dissector, at least with, you know, him being invertible was, was, you know, from both a, a weapon standpoint. And even though, you know, people say, oh, the hammers didn't do much. I'll remind people that I had my logo in the hammers and it was always very fun to put my logo in their armor. Because they could bust them out, and you could count them, right? You could count the damage. But I think, um, I think, I think Dissector. Uh, I always, I always enjoyed the, you know, what it did. Um, it was always very mobile, and um, it just it provided the most options for the ever changing categories of robots. The part you can't plan for, the things you don't know. I like that. Um, that was definitely my favorite of your original creations for the show. Um, all right. So 2015 to 2019 Lockjaw. This is, uh, if there were like high school awards given out for BattleBots, I think that Lockjaw would uh, probably win the award for most changed from 2015 to now. <laughs> yeah. You'd think I'm having trouble making a decision, right? <laughs> Actually, what you should know is that I really just enjoy trying new things. And so we can definitely start with Lockjaw 2015 uh, or, or 2000, uh, yeah, 2015, where, you know, I was attempting to add the sixth wheel version. I think I had two flamethrowers and the jaws were meant to do something. I never got a, people, a chance to show people what it was designed to do, but I'll tell you guys. Um, I got tired of trying to lift robots. Obviously, I could tip them over with the jaws, and that was easy. We could always separate the ground and the and the weight of the robot. But what happened was they raised the arena walls, so it became hard to flip people out of the arena. So they just kept coming. It wasn't enough. Um, but the idea of that robot was to bend, grab them. So if you look at the layout of that design, the jaws wrap 200 degrees in throw which meant I was literally trying to bite the robot forwards and then fold the back end of the robot up underneath me so I could do a deadlift. And at that time, we ran out of time. We were working on it balancing with a lifted robot. I know it sounds crazy, but that was my vision. I imagined changing the leverage point to where I pulled put like a otter. I pulled my back end underneath a captured robot and then stood up like a, a double pendulum and then body slammed them outside the arena. <laughs> that's okay. awesome. See, that's what drives me. Okay. These are the ideas as I get them in my head and I think, I don't care what happens. If I pull that off, I'm done. Right. That's all I want is that moment where I pulled off that, that idea. Um, now there's a lot of math and that you got to have a lot of grip. And I had to be able to have the jaws offset forward in a way where when I, put my body back because physically my my uh the robot would be inverted at the point i folded my own body underneath it but then my leverage point for lifting them is much easier because that becomes my outriggers um so that was the the whole principle behind that design no i don't have any video of it doing it so i never made that mark 
Um, and the flamethrowers were just add-ons at the end because we, we didn't make that. So we wanted to add some cool stuff to it. Um, and then of course, again, the modularity of the design is very important. Um, and I think that year I just pushed a little too hard on the shields instead of the jaws. Um, so that's that version. And then the next year I kind of got a, a crazy hair uh, and decided that I wanted to build an electric flipper. And I still love that. Uh, I had real fun building uh, the titanium flipper, but I mean, let's be fair, uh, that my, my teammates described that like they were building a clock because I couldn't weld the titanium at the time. Everything was bolted together with spacers and, and the electric flipper was all titanium. It was the only way it would make weight. It was 85 pounds just for the flipper mechanism. And of course I was bent on it being invertible. I wanted an invertible flipper. And what I really loved about that design is that it doubled as jaws. I was able to flip and grab and one, one quick sweep. And, and yet he just, you know, I, I, you know, he took out my wires and no one ever got a chance to see it work. <laughs> I think I did a melee, which kind of showed more that what it did. And I, I showed some videos of how it was able to self-write and I could fire the flipper every six seconds, you know, with no problem. But I never, I never felt comfortable because I never had a backup of it. So that event, I was just, you know, I was, I was there with that. And then I, I think the only backup was I had electric set of jaws I could swap out, which I think I did one. And then um, I think that was it. I think for me, that was the beginning of, hey, I gotta, I gotta, I love the jaws and I love kind of where this robot's going, but I, I, I gotta get, I gotta get something more destructive going and I don't know why I'm not. And um, so I slowly have over the years have kind of creeped in the kinetic weapon and um, I've been quite happy with it. I, you know, I think I pushed my motors a little hard in the last three versions. <laughs> it's, it's so challenging to make weight. And, and, you know, every time you add a jaw, I mean, I'm sure you can ask Will Bells about this, but, you know, having the weapon and the jaws, it's an undertaking. Something's got a gift, you know, Something's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated design at this point. That brings us to our next listener question from Brandon Stamper, who asks, how the heck do you fit all the electronics and motors for a spinner, two lifters and four wheels? Yeah, it's, uh, it takes some work. I mean, uh, we'll go back to the angled frame. <laughs> you know i do it all in cat you know uh, solidworks probably the best tool anybody ever gave me when i and back in 2000 when when i started working with the nsi was when the first time i used it i'd been using like rhino and doing just simple parts as an engineer but gosh man once i once people gave me uh cad software and then i i kind of got it it was kind of it was kind of gloves off, you know, because I, it was almost like I had to slow down. I was that same builder guy building everything, but now the amount of designs I can go through in a short order, it's, it's almost like, you know, I have to, I have to throttle myself back about what I'm going to build because you can spend way too much money. Way yeah. Too much. Um, but I do rely on, on that. Um, you know, I custom wire every robot, and um, definitely in the last two, 
I think Lockjaw, uh, yeah, 2019, the very last season of Lockjaw, it was close. I, if anybody who really looked at the robot really seen what I put in there, um, the motors and stuff for the jaws kept getting smaller and smaller, but more functional. Um, I don't, I don't know how many people looked at the last design, but it was one of my most complex lock jaws or robots actually to date, uh, besides walkers. Um, it had what I call series elastic jaws and, but there was a dead band of free space. And, and, and so for those of you who know what that means, it means that a flipper could come up to the jaws and move the jaws. But if I moved them, they still had compliance. They still had urethane so that if I landed on them, the titanium transmissions wouldn't strip. Now, these, these are the, some of the highest complexities in, in articulation for robotic arms is how to make something give and lift and be strong and still be able to deal with stuff like flying through the air from Bronco. And, and, and so in some versions, I would take the actuators out and add armor in another place. Other times I would have actuators only in one jaw. No one ever knows really what I'm up to. And to be fair, that's kind of my plan. I make my robot so adaptable. You just have to ask yourself, what would I do with the time I have? So that's, that's kind of my angle. Um, I believe that the robots are, are better suited to adapt and, and, and having only one card, somebody eventually gets your number. So, uh, so can you just elaborate? One of my favorite aspects about your most recent designs is the invertibility of your spinner. Yeah. Yeah. Can you elaborate on how you accomplish that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's, there's a, there's a few subtlety tricks to it. Um, you know, I can tell you that it helps us with procession. I won't tell you exactly how, but those <laughs> skilled in the art, like the gentleman on the line about doing his uh, procession robots or their kinetic moving. Um, there's a lot of forces being exerted from spinning masses. Um, we, we, it's very challenging to, to have all of that, have a limited throw and not give up on your wheel diameter, not mm -hmm. give up on your disc diameter. So everything is designed within the invertibility space. They'll always be invertible and um, they'll always be able to switch the motors back really quick. Um, and then I like the modularity of it. Um, I, I, I definitely push the motors a little harder than I should. Um, and I'm still kind of learning. I, I would consider myself, well, I guess this is my third, third year doing a kinetic weapon. And, uh, you know, we'll just have to see what kind of improvements we've made, but um, it's substantial improvements this year. Um, but the, uh, it's, it's all the same kind of uh, pieces that you come to expect. Um, but just, um, you know, this is, it's been a long time since I kept evolving a same design. And so I guess we call this version of uh, Lockjaw, you know, the kinetic version still has uh, some mandibles on it that, that are very useful, but it's, uh, it's definitely an evolutionary process. And it's probably the hardest part for an engineer like myself who has so many different ideas and maybe I should do this, maybe I do that, but I, I'll never try and copy someone. So my, my ideas are limited 
in the fact that I always want to do something new and I want to make the other engineers go, oh, that's pretty cool. And I want to win that way. Um, so that's the most honorable part for me is, is to try and just keep evolving this design. Um, I did have a walker laid out. Um, it's a shame, you know, we won't be talking much about that right now, but you can know it's coming. Um, no, it's not gear crew. <laughs> uh, I was going to sneak this question in later. Um, all right. So before we get to that, I do have a listener question from Graham Grizz Glover III. Uh, and quite frankly, it would not be an interview with Donald Hudson if we didn't ask this question. Um, so can you explain what happened from your point of view in your match with Overhaul, first season of the reboot, and the infamous late hit moment? Uh, what were your feelings after you saw it and how it was portrayed on television? Um, well, I would say it was more television. Um, I think... And I also think they play that up a lot. I think uh, they were young kids. Their emotions are pretty tight. And I was quite surprised, but I knew what to do. I knew to just be like, come on, you guys, you know, I figured they'd just cut that out because that's not really what we want to advertise. And a late hit, I want to tell you, no one hears anything. The buzzers are going up. My teammates are yelling at me. They can all tell you, no one hears anything while they're driving. Um, so I, you know, I, I wouldn't do that. That's that's kind of against my grain. There would be, there would be absolutely no reason in my history to do that. <laughs> I would have no benefit whatsoever. So I thought it was uh, a mistake by maybe a half a second. And and you know, I think I questioned how they played it. And 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 this is a rule for me as a professional engineer. I want everybody out there to know to listen to this we should never cross that line as engineers are meant to be more noble than that. And I think they regretted it. They all apologized. And I apologized because I made a mistake if I did at that last second, but it really, there's no way it could have been malicious. So I think after a while they realized, Oh yeah, you know, no one does that. It wouldn't have made a difference. Right. <laughs> right? It wouldn't have made a difference. There's no, no one's, no one's scoring a card with that at the end. So uh, I don't know. I, I, I think uh, I think it was just a mistake. And I think I think audience, you know, I think TV likes to do that. I'll, I'll hope that going forward that the that we get a chance to do what, you know, um, what some of the engineers are most proud of do. And that includes, you know, folks like the late, uh, you know, Grant Imahara. Those guys were all my idols, uh, you know. Everybody from Mythbusters, but you know, I can't, I can't uh, interrupt at this point and just say I can't say enough about, you know, his composure. Grant's was a model engineer, and there's not a single person listening to this right now that who has met him has ever seen him not be that guy. And we really did lose someone who inspired, you know, millions of kids and engineers to be the right kind of engineer. And, and I want the folks at Discovery to know that that is what this show is about. Yeah. It's about the gracious professionalism of being an engineer. And I, I certainly will never, ever tolerate the dark side of, of the stories and the PR. Any of those guys that produce always tell you, I go, I don't care what you do, but you have the most talented, well-paid engineers 
competing in this sport and you should never dirty them up because you don't need to. You have tons of content on the great side of what they do. You should never try to look towards the dark side because once you lose them, you lose them. And they've done that to a couple of competitors already where they just kind of let that train run away without saving it. And you forget that we as engineers, we won't take that. You know, you'll lose valuable people in this sport if you think they're going to jeopardize their career as an engineer at some big company over a TV show. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I won't do yep. it. I'm, I'm, I'm there for the privilege of folks. I'm building and working aside from my job and my company, not for myself, but for everybody else. And, and all the sacrifices I make is because of those payoffs that it did to get me a good job. If it ever hurts me the opposite way, I'm out. No reason. I get that. There's no reason. It's not, you, you know, we're beyond this battle bots, Mythbusters, these kind of TV shows. If they ever go the direction of American Chopper or any of those, it'll fail. It, 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 it admits, it admits failure. It by pure nature says there is nothing else here, but stories of bad emotions. And I, I just, that's a long haul question, but that's what it means to me. Um, and I don't think anybody who's in this wants to ever look up and be like, really, you had all this great content. We did all this stuff. You had tons of media, but you found something about me picking my nose. <laughs> that's all you have? <laughs> that's writing. That's writing. So producers have to find a way to make us all heroes. If they want more heroes, celebrate us celebrate our hard work, celebrate what we really put into the robot and the sacrifices we made. Yeah. I feel like that first season, especially they were really looking for villains. You know, they were looking for bad guys in the story and that's, you know, even, uh, even Ray who kind of embraced that in the first season has been, you know, from a, from a like storytelling standpoint, redeemed, I think in the seasons following, you know, he's not the villain. He's, he's yeah. a scary he's competitor. A he's a really powerful guy to go against, but he's not a villain. See, he came through on his own and just didn't fall into it. Right. He, he played it up for, for them who do it. But I think, I think that first season, you know, yeah, they, they don't know. I mean, let's take a step back. Imagine any reality TV show trying to, um, write out a story as it's being filmed that uh, I've seen the producers and I got to give them credit at this point. They, the storytellers, the folks that are writing our stories as we show up are changing it hourly. They are in the back rooms trying to figure out who we are, what our message is this time. Who is it? You know, they're asking us questions like, who do we fear the most so that they can try and draw out a natural story. Um, they just got to work harder. I think it just evolves itself. I really do. I think there's natural stories going on in the pits. If they really want to see excitement, damn, send the cameras in before and after a match. Because we work like dogs uh, as a team to try and uh, put things together. And uh, I think a lot of people sign on be like they do in the chopper building shows. Not for the drama. They just want to see how we make yeah. They want to know they want to know what my answer is to this problem. And will I, which, which one will I pick to solve and how I'll do it? Will I go use a milling machine to break a bracket or will I cut it with a plasma torch in 20 minutes and move on to another problem? 
that's really where the real drama is. It's it, the real stuff is is right there in front of them. They just, I think they just have trouble keeping up with all of it going on at the same time. They're they're not really equipped to film all the pits at the same time yet. No, for sure. And I think a lot of people's favorite segments in the last season were the the kind of Jenny Taft um, real journalism, like sports journalism being used backstage in the pits, which was great. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed those segments. I know the, everybody in my family really did um, because they did explore those, you know, those problem solving moments, those like that drama of the show, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, that's what we're there for. I mean, I think the hope is and that's that's what I think when BattleBots and Robot Wars was created from the very beginning. That's the part I fell in love with, the ever-changing challenges of it all and, um, and teams working together to, to solve just ridiculous amount of problems in a short period of time. I mean, you think anybody really knows we're there for 15 days? <laughs> no. No. You have no idea. I've been, you know, living out of my garage uh, daily um, building these things. And um, I think eventually technology will catch up and we'll be able to capture more of that. And they'll, but it's, it's more writing to fill that in. But I think they're getting better at it. I, I, I've seen the, the writers backstage. They're starting to ask. I usually judge them by their questions. If they ask me really good questions, I know we're not under a good season. <laughs> they're, they're, they ask me why I chose purple for my frame again. All right. So before we move into kind of the future, the 2020 lockjaw, um, you've had a chance to fight against some of the all time greats. Is there a builder that you never got to fight against that you wish you had? Yeah, every other one. Um, I think my goal is just like everybody else to check off a little box. I fought that type of robot and, and that version of them. And, uh, you know, I know if I tell you which ones I want to fight, I'll be in the ring with them first match. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, if I was wise, I'd be like, you know, uh, no, I won't, I won't give you a story. Um, look, at the end of the day, I only want one thing in these battles. I want what you want. I want to look down in the arena floor, look at the competitor, and I want to do what every other person and spectator does size up the robots, have an expectation of what they think is going to happen. And then three minutes later, I want them talking about what, what happened, what didn't happen, and how it nowhere came close to what they thought was going to happen, or it lasted the whole three minutes. My fondest memories of BattleBots is, in its emphasis on Comedy Central, is coming out of the arena and everybody chanting, three more minutes three more minutes. I mean, people just want a drama to unfold between the robots. And I, I mentioned this to, uh, I think his name's Kyle, no, Ryan. Ryan, Ryan, he's probably one of the main producers. He's probably listening right now. I told him, I go, I would love to see a version of the show that takes out all people. If you can imagine an almost silent film from the robot's point of view the feeling of its fear, it being repaired, and what it's like to have something work out at the end where the robot's surviving, but it's like on one wheel. There's so many cool stories you could do with almost that type of film. But I think that people, people have an expectation 
And, and, and I think all we want to see is the unexpected. And so I think majority of the people root for the underdogs. And so I'm pretty confident that when I go in the arena and there's an underdog, everybody's voting for the underdog. Okay. They, they, unless they just want pure destruction or something, depending on how they do it, but there's always those two halves, but nobody wants it to end unfairly. None of us competitors, no matter how you call it, even in the finals, want to have something unexpected happen to the arena into our robots where the match does not end mono and mono robot on robot where we can clear can you know decisively see that that we out that we ran the whole time that's not why we lost so you know we're really always fighting ourselves just to keep the robot to make a good showing and put up a good fight that I, I'm pretty confident that, that that's the win for all of us. We, we just need a couple good matches showing that our idea worked <laughs> mm-hmm. With, without scraping it up in a trash bag the first match. That's, that's a beating. That's a beating. All right, Donald, uh, let's, let's break some news here, huh? Uh, 2020 season is coming up. I got a question here from Alexander Archer who asks, is Lockjaw returning for the upcoming season of BattleBots? If so, what upgrades can we expect that you've made to him this season? Uh, I'm pretty confident I'm going to have less smoke pouring out of my motors. <laughs> That'll be good. Um, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's pretty obvious. As people can look back and realize that uh, I've been inching my way forward. And uh, this, this version of Lockjaw is going to mean business. Um, I say that every year. I come a little bit stronger, a little bit more prepared. And I'm twice what I was last year. So um, I think, I think uh, people can just expect, uh, you know, the best I can do. Yeah. I have a question from Matt Hedger who asks, will we ever see Lockjaw's uh, Jaws come back into play, or are we transitioning to some kind of spinner from here on out? Uh, well, I always have the Jaws in play. They're, uh, they're not just kind of a, you know, a staple of the, the old dissector terms. They're, if, 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 actually, let's, let's, let's go ahead and take a look at most of the robots now. They're, all, um, they're actually all really still carrying Tazbot's feet. <laughs> That's the very... They're, everybody's carrying serrated, pointed jaws. They just don't look like jaws, right? So the, the, the evolution of robots and what it takes to negate other people's offenses and defenses has not busted yet. Mm. You know, There's not a simple solution for this. And so, no, uh, you'll see jaws on the robot. Absolutely. I won't tell you what they do yet, though. <laughs> They're replacing the wheels. Just little jaws. I love it. It's brilliant. No one's going to see it coming. You know, to be fair, the 2015 one actually had wags on it, too. If that wasn't crazy enough. We were, it was supposed to be a half walking. I was supposed to inner switch the wheels. With wow. The yep. Yep. You want to see You want to see it? Of course. Oh, whoa. All titanium with a built-in shock absorber. 
and that's all quarter inch tie. So I could take off the wheels and then anybody familiar with WEGS know that they're logic controlled. And so all those gearboxes that were fancy anodized had encoders in absolute position. And so it was meant to do a lot of cool stuff for this sport. But as usual, it's hard to be cool and functional at the same time. And uh, I seem to have a lot bigger ideas than I do money and time. So. It's, a, it's like everything is just a, a battle between aesthetics and functionality. I, I really just, I just really want to try. I love this sport and I love what it does to other engineers. And I want, I want other people out there building stuff to try to build stuff that they think is interesting and, and cool and take chances. Cause that's the way to win. Look at the end of the day, you asked me about my, my intro into this. Once I realized that I was there to try and impress the other engineers, you know, I was home. I didn't really care what happened next. I just, I just want to continue to build stuff. That's what I, that's what I enjoy. I, I rarely drive them. <laughs> I spend more time building them than I do driving. So, you know, the, the, there's unique cir circumstances now in the, in the COVID era that has, um, uh, you know, propagated, uh, you know, some new bots that are, uh, are very obscure and interesting and out there. And, I, and I'm curious and, uh, we have a question also from Cameron Hutton who asks, as a veteran of the sport, are there any bots that have caught your eye for the 2020 season? Oh, yeah. My favorite, Zoe. Uh, Zoe and Yasha from uh, Chomp. Uh, you know, they're my heroes at this point. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, they're the most, you know, they're, they're definitely some of the most talented engineers and the most passionate engineers uh, I've ever met. And I love that they took this sport to a new level because they want to, they want to try. And it's, um, it's really going to shake things up. Um, if I'm worried about one robot, it's Chomp now. They, they, have, uh, they have presented us with a whole new set of problems. And um, it's, uh, you know, them, uh, I love huge. He's, he's got me thinking crazily too. I just, you know, it's, it's these different designs where, you know, if you see me up showing up and I'm, you know, I usually have different stuff for a lot of people. I'm having to make a lot of different objects and, and uh, fittings for different folks. And, and I have no idea how to, how to combat all these different designs. Now it's, it's, um, but chomp, that's off to them, you know. Uh, they're gonna, they're gonna be stomping, stomping in that arena, and I just love the message they're sending to the world. That it, you know, the the road less traveled is way more worth it, mm. and uh, they could win the whole thing with 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 their design. And it took a lot of work. I, I have not seen nothing but just image. Don't think I have an inside. I have nothing more than Facebook, but I know them enough. <laughs> to see when I see something like that, I know what the rest of it is going to do. And, um, and uh, I, you know, my hat's off to them. They, uh, they're what we need in this sport. Somebody has to kind of kick it off like Mark, Mark Satrakian, really the pioneer of all that. Uh, the guys uh, from Rex doing kinetic robots that move, uh, you know, but, you know, folks like Mark Satrakian and Zoe, these guys are building them because they love to build them and they love to show us that, you know, as, as Mark Satrakian said in the past, and I love to quote him for this, BattleBots is art imitating TV. 
It doesn't have to, you know, we're, we're kind of making a joke of it because we're, we're really building our own real life superheroes and we want to see them win in a rightful way. These comics, these characters, these robots that we build, they will stand the test of time, not from just being drawn, not from just being talked about, but from going through a complete process to actually be a victor. They have a story. They have, uh, they have a life process that interacts with the real world. And for me, um, I can just see that that's why the world is really fond of BattleBots is they're always ever-changing. Everybody's got an angle and a story and a message they're trying to say that their idea is better than another. And um, I applaud teams for taking that on. You get a handshake out of me every time people show up and they, they got something cool. They all like to show me some of their cool parts. And I, I, I just think that's what the sport's about. No one, no one, um, everybody's looking for the right opportunity to build their next robot. And I believe what folks like Chomp and Mark Satrakian do, uh, you know, Zoe and, and Mark Satrakian specifically, Jasha, these guys are, are really what's helping us all get sponsors. They're, 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 they're building robots that, you know, are starting to bring sponsorship money back into it, which allow us to build our next robot. That's the part of this engine that needs to be more, um, Discovery's done a great job, but the logos on toys and logos in video games, that's where the money will start to change the sport. Some people may disagree that it's, it's about just building the robot, but those usually are from people who have kept it pretty basic and built the same robot. But for me, I mean, I got a lot of money in different robots and I want to keep doing it. Um, I got to get sponsors. They got to want to have the robot on their trade show floor um, as is. So that's, that's kind of the engine that that BattleBot is meant to spawn. And it did in 2002, those toys with stickers and video games, had it not changed course, that was, that was headed right up there towards NASCAR where we were all building walking robots with pits of semis. I mean, I think in my mind, I still see it that way. Yeah, it's interesting to think had, you know, this the show had continued since back then where the show would be now. Um, well, I think Discovery is the perfect network for it. I think they, they're just used to the really inexpensive. It's different. I'm not yeah. saying it's bad. It's different. They're used to their inexpensive five cameramen go out on, on shoot, film some reality shows. And during those tough times, they got a lot of money and, and, and they got a lot of content that people, you know, some people just like to watch that drama. But you can look at Mythbusters and realize that that's not this audience. This audience doesn't want that. This audience actually wants just the opposite. We don't really want, maybe some people do, but a majority of us want great machines. Uh, they want to see CNCs in the pits. They want to see us uh, using the CAD software to make something in 30 minutes, uh, build a leg. Uh, they want to know all the things that they're not getting a chance to see yet. And the only way that happens is with sponsors and money. And so I beg people out there listening, if you have the means to, to, to help folks get more sponsors, um, you should do it because that enables them to build their next cool walking robot. 
and all the momentum coming from these next group of toys and video games, you're, you're we're well on course for this. Make no mistake. BattleBots is pretty solid and we've held our own and now everything is, is starting to take place. We just, um, we're just headed right there. So I hope everybody takes advantage of it. Don't be afraid to go out there and ask for that new CNC as a sponsorship. Um, everybody's getting eyes on these robots. We're all getting our, our four fights. So that's, that's one of the solutions for everybody getting their robot on TV when you can't promise. Um, yeah. and, and that's my answer. I think, uh, I think as it progresses, I mean, you opened up asking about you know, who I see the most proud. I think these guys that are pushing the walking robots, I don't want to, I don't think it will ever extinct the battle, the, the wheeled class, but I think we're going to see them start to merge. And then eventually uh, we're going to hope that we can just build purely walking robots because I got to hand it to Zoe and them to build the first, or actually the second, because Mark Satriki did it first, but the full, uh, the full walking robots to take on the kinetic robots. I mean, that's a challenge. That's across the board, hands down, you know, an engineering award for me. Yeah, I know that we are all extremely, extremely excited to see, you know, what it looks like once once the filming starts and, you know, what, what they're able to come up with. I, I can't wait. Um, so we have some listener questions, some uh, fun ones for you. Go for it. <laughs> so uh, this first one is from an up-and-coming young builder named Hypershock Captain Will Bales. Um, and he wants yeah. to know... <laughs> I know it's going to be funny. Hold on. I got to get ready for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now that you are properly ready, uh, hold on. The question is, how do you warp your brain and model all the oblique faces on Lockjaw's chassis? Asking for a friend in need of a lobotomy. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. But to be fair, I seen Will Bell's, I seen Hypershock's chassis last season why he he didn't notice i was looking because i was checking it out when he was just way in the frame and will i think you have the same problem i seen that frame it's a pretty pretty damn amazing frame in his robots as well so but i i do thank you for that um i think it's solid work itis i think i think we get in a computer and um we believe we can achieve anything uh and it gets damn close uh I think that when you have to make a robot light and strong, if you if you actually took every robot I've built since uh, even Lockjaw, you watch them shrink. And it's because I'm optimizing gearboxes. Now, just to be clear, uh, Will, all of my gearboxes are completely titanium. Okay? That is pure insanity at this point where I'm, I'm, st I'm stacking sheets of titanium together to make bigger gears just because a laser can cut it, okay? I'm doing things in CAD from a puzzle fit standpoint where I'm building my complete frame with one weld in 30 minutes minus the welds. Wow. 30 minutes, I'll take it out of the truck from the laser cutter, I'll put it together, tack the last place, put a bolt in it, and I'll pick it up, shake it a couple times, figure out where I'm going to weld it first, and I start welding. And, uh, and so technology has made that part kind of more easy to work with. I'm more, I'm more likely to make these complicated changes 
with uh, some of the rapid fabrication capabilities of a laser compared to machining it um, piece by piece for every piece. Um, but I, I love that part. I love that everybody appreciates how much extra work I put to throw a little bit of cool in it. You're damn straight. If I look for, if I look at something, I, there's been many times I'm almost done with the robot and I'll be like, I could, I know if I went through those seven pieces of chromoly with a diagonal plate, it would look so much cooler. And the sick part is I'll go and do it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> If it saves weight, it's a no-brainer. If it adds a triangle to the strength, it's a no-brainer. Uh, it's usually the only time that stops me. Um, so I appreciate that. And yes, I'll always try to, to throw a little bit of something in there that makes sure you know who built it. I love that. I love that so much. Um, so uh, Nelly the Alleybot Captain Sarah Malian asks, as he's so good at a British accent, I think he should give Australian a go. Oh. <laughs> now, now, Ellie, you know I wasn't properly able to do the English accent and it sounded Australian when I did it last time. <laughs> anyway, that's it. That's all no. I got. That was magnificent. That uh, that was truly wonderful. Thank you, and thank you, Sarah, for for uh, asking that. To be that fair, I have an I have an engineer at Modal AI who I work with, and he just cracks up all the time because you know he's British, and I I'm always when I'm around him, I just try and talk British just for the fun of it. He gets a kick out of it. He always tries to talk uh, English, and we just have a fun <laughs> time with it. And I did that with her too. So. Yeah, but, I'm glad you find it funny and not insulting because I'm not sure the Australian one is 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 really flattering. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so Richard Sum asks, having been probably the most successful he super heavyweight builder in BattleBots history, in a dream scenario, would you welcome a comeback for the super heavyweight class? And if so, what would you imagine a new 340 pound robot to look like? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh, it's an excellent question. Um, well, first off, I'll answer the first part that is if they did decide to do a super weight heavyweight category. Yeah, I would pull Dissector out just for nostalgia and make them beat that one first. That's how it should work. Right. Um, and and I like that. Uh, I think the the real dilemma there is what is the right right price point to keep everybody there and where is technology as far as motors and gearboxes how does that you know how could that extra weight be used and then more importantly does anybody out there think that a 350 pound uh, spinning mass can be contained um i don't know that we want to ask that question yet it might not be the most important part of the show to be bigger as size is still hard to judge it's it's cool when it's in person and you see them big you're like wow yeah, that could go through a house. Um, our robots have gotten smaller, so I don't, I don't know that the audience really appreciates how, how dense the machines are. Um, but if, if they get bigger, um, would, would Dissector still be formal? I bet I'd do, pre I'd do pretty good, I think, even with Dissector today, because it's very similar in my, uh, the way I lay out things. It, 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 I'm not saying it would win, by no means. It, it, it needs some work. 
but I would appreciate seeing, I, I would think it's quite cool if it came back and it even got a bigger class, that would be uh, pretty cool. But I'd, I'd rather see the walkers come back first. I, th I think everybody out there should, should really be thinking about, you know, what could be, you know, what does it take to draw in the rest of the engineers in our world to want to grow up and be an engineer? Battle bots and walking robots, being a, a, a rocket ship engineer, a jet engine guy, all of that. Those are what we want our young engineers to be. It's what I want my own boys to be. Yeah. I can convince them. I can only show them. I can show them what it's like to have a job you love to do every day. And, and I can't convince them that it's not going to be easy work. But I can show them how, how, how rewarding it is to take on something hard like that and um and be successful at it. it it's it just has we have to show it and we've got a one we gotta i i would love to see folks like darpa and some of our our, our government agency agency what they talk about all the time i've heard every story possible oh yeah we want to help all of the engineers you know build any kind of robot right but that's really where we got to push our engineers they got to want to do it and we got to yeah. give them the easel to do it. So BattleBots is that easel. I think uh, I think that's a beautiful philosophy. And I mean, I can't think of a better way than BattleBots um, well, I, to I, show I something possible. Yeah, and I got to say one thing too. Also, I don't know if most people know, I am a first mentor. I, I didn't do it last year for the first time in 13 years because it oh, was wow. just crazy, crazy time. But I'm also a big fan of First Robotics. They build, you know... Vex as well. Vex has their own robot competitions, but and, and they all are few, fueling like literally any engineer I hire at my company, they go right to the top of the resume stack if they've competed in first, Vex or BattleBots, BattleBots IQ, any kind of NASA challenge, all the things that you'll, you'll look up. You'll see Paul Vigamilani entered all of those and won half of them. Okay. <laughs> That's that's the kind of programs we need, and and uh, to be fair, our government should really be helping subsidize these these programs. They should be high school. You should get a letter for doing this stuff. Just my yeah. opinion. No, I agree completely, and we we get this question all the time from uh, fans, and we see this question all the time in the BattleBots group, where parents are like, "How can I get my child? You know, how can I get them more experience? They're really interested. Where can they start?" And I think all the things that you just listed, you know, that's the answer. That's that's what they should be seeking out if it's in their area or if it's something that they're, you know, able to do. Because exactly like you, you said, that's the experience that that they need to be able to, you know, uh, start budding careers in, in engineering. Yeah. Even as a teammate, these people that enter first in BattleBots as just teammates, they do it because they're interested or maybe there's some girl in there or whatever. They just go to the after-school program to see what it's all about. All my star students in first were all just, you could tell they we could not feed those kids information fast enough. They, there, there are so many kids out there who just look up at YouTube and you're like, Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then I do what everybody else does. There's a world of stuff out there that's free in your after-school programs. Parents just need to take the kids to it and pick them up at five o'clock. That is yeah. all you have to do. You have to get them there and then pick them up 
And then every time they want a Lego kit, give it to them. Every time they want, that's what my mom did. She, she fed me every piece of technology. Let me take apart everything I could find. And uh, I, just, I just think that's, that's the underlying thing of all these competitions. They're meant to breed engineers. And that's what they did to me. They made me, they made me want to know more than any, any university could ever show me in one shot. I needed that push of where I was going and what I was interested in. And, and, and those competitions point you towards software. You could be CAD designer. You could be a, a machinist, a mechanical engineer. You could be a welder, a TIG welder. You could be setup, layout, circuit boards. Actually, robots cover all disciplines, marketing, um, sponsors. Uh, the competitions carry every single thing we want to see our kids be good at. Teamwork, deadlines. Um, there's really no reason not to have them. Yeah. Zero. zero. Not even money. <laughs> so um, we have another question here from Drew Davis, who wants to know, what's one new trend that you see uh, out there in robotics right now that you refuse to partake in? And then what's one that you could see yourself implementing in the future? Oh, well, you did use the word robotics. Um, <laughs> I'm a little freaked out by the robots that go and hunt fish and um, collect flies for power. I feel like that's the end of the world. They start, you know, doing weird stuff like being self-sufficient and eating animals to stay alive. I'll be very... Oh, freaked out about that uh yeah so that's, that's hey don't laugh it's out there okay <laughs> so no fly powered lock jaws in the future no i think that's pretty funny though i mean it's it's, it's great science though you know yeah it's great um i think I, I, yeah i think they all lead towards really great questions and it's okay to do something so outside of the box that you get a lot of exposure so you can do what you want to do that's that gets into the marketing part, right? Yeah. Um, but definitely the stuff I love to see the most and I'm most proud of uh, as a country is uh, what the folks at Boston Dynamics. And I know a ton of people, even actually Scott Lavalley, who um, was in the first Robot Wars. He's been a judge, I think. Uh, he now works for Disney. He's, he's one of those up there with Mark Satrakian and Zoe and those guys. And, um, you know, he builds just some of the most craziest uh, things I, I've ever seen. And, um, you know, I want to see more of that. I want to see more people uh, uh, build uh, more, more walking robots. I want to see them have the, the canvas to do so. And um, and I think that's as old engineers that's 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 the best thing I, I could I could see going forward. I'm a very big fan of the walking and and you know what 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 folks did like at Boston Dynamics. I mean let's let's be fair. Has anybody ever seen a real life Terminator do parquet and backflips from one back to another? That's the kind of stuff that really just for me 
is I'm most proud of because I know I've been a fan of it for the longest time and it's the hardest stuff in the world is to perceive and act in real time and then add motor control on top of that. Not just wheels, but motor control. Yeah. And, and we can all look back. I just, I just want to take this moment to say in, uh, and I'm sure Zoe can chime in and create, uh, say something about this, but two years ago when Chomp with AI and her camera system took out uh, Paul's uh, weapon with one hit and an autonomous camera, that was not celebrated enough. I agree. There's the only robot in three years to beat Paul and it's Chomp and she does it in one hit autonomously and her robot has more cameras and microcontrollers on it than probably any three battle bots there. Wow. And, you know, where's that story? Where's it at? Zoe, I applaud you. Zoe, you are awesome. She's my champion right now. <laughs> so um, uh, the next question is from Will Hahn, who asks, with so many abnormal mutant designs under your belt, I got to ask, do you have any other crazy designs or concepts that you would like to try someday if the opportunity comes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's actually one of my biggest problems is to not build everything in my computer right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I will tell you that um, there was a couple of us that have been on this thread of, of walking robots and and I will have to disappoint and, and say that uh, I do I do not have something for this season, but I do have something ready to go. And I look forward to that opportunity. I'm, I'm super eager to enter that space. Um, I'm not saying I want to retire to it in any way. I'll always do both if I can. Um, and of course, it's, it's really no big deal to do both. Um, but I look forward to pushing that challenge. That's that's that for me is always about doing what you haven't done yet. Um, you know, I got a whole bunch of walking robots that just I I really wanted to help be the pioneer of of uh, um, of watching BattleBots evolve into that version um, that we all want to see someday. And I just it's ten times harder. It's that's yeah. just all there is to it. There's no easy card here. It's um, it, it, it's got it's gonna take it's gonna take uh, chomp and, and a couple robots and a couple of these other bigger guys to get the right sponsorship and and uh, and then it'll happen uh, but we have to work year long on it we have to have backups to do it right and I know the one thing that every one of these guys if they're listening is saying and that is the hardest part is being ready like we are with a battle bot you can't just have extra legs but you should you know? Yeah. Like, how do I turn that around and not disappoint where we've seen so many variants of it. We know that we all want to do it. Well, we've set our bar TV media has set the bar so high. The in-between is tough. So it's, there's a middle ground here. And I think BattleBots did it best by allowing both categories, complete walking as a self, because they don't care how it happens. They just, they just, so building a battle bot that, oh, that gets the weight allowance is totally fair. The extra weight it takes to put legs on a robot is very complicated and a, and a big hit on mobility. And uh, they took the challenge and I, I'm sure they're going to do great at it. 
and it's going to change the sport. You see, people are going to think about what's worth doing and, and, and what ideas they can do next. And that's the best thing I can hope for this sport is people keep trying to build, you know, something, some, even in the wheeled class. I don't care. I've seen all kinds of new designs every year. I can still think of 30 designs people haven't even tried yet because <laughs> it's hard. And they're yeah. willing, they have to be willing to fail. They have to be okay showing up and being proud that they got there with the design and, 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 and set their sights for that. I think that's, that's my advice to everybody doing that. I love that. I hope, I hope everybody out there um, hears that. That's uh, that's so important to, to internalize. Um, so we have a, a couple uh, last questions here. One from John Gann who wants to know currently all battle bots are remotely controlled for the entire match. Do you think a 30 to 45 second autonomous period will ever exist? Well, there you go. There's my first student right there. I know he was in first if he says that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think everything in our world falls around the reward system. Um, I think what we have to find is we have to find folks to reward folks for doing things autonomously. Um, I know that there's some in-between things that we everybody's been studying, like the, the arena is pretty constrained. If we can map it in 3D or, or use overhead cameras, it greatly reduces the complexity. And actually overhead cameras start to cross the threshold of being superhuman because at 120 frames a second, you can exceed a human's decision tree. Um, and yes, I do think they need to have an autonomous version of it. But remember the folks that take that on have to realize that we're, if, 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 you, if you're not mobile and it's not exciting, it's hard for people to to get that other half of the show if they're not really experienced in autonomy. But I do think that they should do it. I think there should be an autonomous battle bots. And, um, and I think if you, they would have to put some things in place so people just don't drive in a straight line. That's not autonomy. But if you could pull off, you know, some unique advantage that we wanted to incrementally see added to BattleBots in a ton, take off baby baby teeth. That's what they do in first. They kind of throw care, they're, they're, it's like NASA engineers do their competition. They're like, every year they're like, they're all thinking how everybody's gonna try and get out of it. And, and what they do is they just think of that one breadcrumb that's gonna lure people to use cameras because it could have a high payoff. Um, and I'd love to see it, I would. I think it's just, uh, an autonomous robot chasing another robot is definitely very possible today. Even with some of our technology at Modal AI, we're building 3D maps that look like Minecraft everywhere we go wow. with, no, with no GPS. So we can totally 3D reconstruct at 30 frames a second um, objects. But, you know, to take that risk and put it in the robot and deal with cameras and the things like Zoe's using and, and her kind of stuff is a big challenge. They got a reward for that. You know, get NASA in there. You know, I have people sponsor the autonomous side and, you know, what's the advantage um, for a BattleBot builder to, uh, to add that? Is it they, they get to start five seconds earlier? And then what would we expect them to do that would be like, yeah, boy, you deserve that, that early lead because you did it without 
you know, you know, dead reckoning or, or just basic odometry. You know, we want, you know, you found the robot and did something or you pushed a button, you know, those kind of things could be quite exciting in a match. Matter of fact, maybe what we ought to do is combine it. If you show up with an autonomous uh, multi-bot, uh, maybe, maybe it shouldn't count and wait. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. So uh, Sumi Shik asks, lockdowns aside, and with other sports suffering for fans, what do you think it would take to fast track live broadcasted BattleBot shows? Um, you know, that, that's actually also a very good question. You know, um, form follows function, right? And one of the things I can say for sure is I, I was never worried about the live audience. Um, I feel like people love to see it. And then, you know, they stay there for the long filming. They see one session. They only see part of the robots. Um, I remember very at the very beginnings when BattleBots was on pay-per-view. I loved it. I thought, I think BattleBots is inherently designed to start headed towards the live viewers. I think I'd love to see millions of people log in and watch the matches live because I just feel like it's, it's, it can be done just as good. Now. We can, we can have live feeds. You can be in the arena. You could uh, log in to a server on my robot. You know, people could win chances to be in the video, like be inside my robot while it's fighting. I think, um, I think it just helps across the board and broadens the audience uh, beyond TV. Um, I don't know how that fits into Discovery's plan for online viewing. It's always been like they're trying to push people more towards, you know, a live TV show. But I think yeah. the inside cameras or drop cams can be very useful for that 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 point of view. Um, but I think at this point they should do it. I think they should allow many people to to log in. And I think the people out there watching it should be like, yeah, it's worth a couple bucks, man. You pay 14 bucks for the whole season. You know, God, you know, why, why, why don't you pay 10 to, to log in that day and, and, and have a party at your house with all your friends. Let's do it right. Let's get, uh, <laughs> let's get these kids watching it and cheering and, and yeah, we can't get them all there. We never could. We, 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 we I don't think we could ever hold that as big of an audience as we actually have. So maybe both. I just, for now, um, you know, obviously they're going to film a ton of episodes. You're going to get a lot of content on this. going to be a great show no matter what. And um, I'm sure they're trying to work out that bandwidth. I don't know what kind of servers it takes to do a live show, but I think we did do it for Jeff Bezos' party. Yeah, yeah, the Remars thing. Remars, right. And that was a good test. That was a good sign of, of you know, maybe what was possible. Um, just got to throw some big sponsors and big companies at it so that it's, it's done right. And, um, and it helps the, the sport, right? Yeah, that the Remars thing was so fun to watch. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, when once things kind of go back to normal and, and, and crowds can be a thing again, or even if not, um, that, that they're able to kind of experiment with that and, and bring more of those because it is, you know, it is a great thing to, to have people over and like watch this live robot event, you know? It's a good excuse to be like a prize fight. Why not? Yeah. 
the world has just got the perfect opportunity to make it live. And, you know, every prize fight could be the one at the end of the round. You don't get to see the rest of the event, but you get to see like one ver one fight live. You know, maybe they break it up so no one really knows what happens. We only know that in the qualifiers we, we fought. Okay. So if they're really worried about bursting the bubble, but I feel like this is the time to kind of innovate for discovery and be, and actually for all online, my whole company's online now, but we have people working in the office safely as well. But I think the whole world as a, as a whole is starting to step back and say, wait a sec, we couldn't have planned this better. If we went out before all this and said, hey, let's all go online because our company is perfect for it. It was like, yeah, but nobody else is doing it. And you know, what's that gonna get us? Listen, for everybody out there, this is the time to reinvent and turn it into a positive. Anybody out there driving on the roads right now know that this is possible. It can be better. It can lower cost and it can make a lot more accessibility for school. Yeah, is it going to change everything? Yeah, but it's time to adapt. You got to take advantages of the positives in this. And there are some. Absolutely. There are uh, some. Not many, there's some. Yeah. So we uh, close out every interview with a series of deeply philosophical questions from BattleBot superfan Mary Catherine Carr. Um, and uh, this, this time she says, uh, we're going to play the screw Mary kill game with robots. And uh, she wants to call it fight tag team incinerator. So, all right, let's say you are um, fighting with Lockjaw. Okay. Um, who, which bot of those three would you want to fight? Which one would you want to tag team and fight another bot? And then which one would you just want to incinerate? So we've okay. got Tombstone, Witch Doctor, and Bite Force. Oh. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, well, I know it's inevitable. Um, I want to fight Witch Doctor because I've never fought them. Um, oh, wow, that's that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, bite force. I I want to incinerate because he's won too much, and I was <laughs> damn close last time. Um, so I, I I'm still not settled about that one. Uh, <laughs> and Tombstone, he just scares the shit out of me. He ripped off my wheels too quickly last time. So, uh, it's all right. I'm ready for him this time. Awesome. All right. So fight, tag team, or incinerate duck, whiplash, and Scorpios. Oh, that's right. I didn't do the tag team. Um, uh, Scorpios tag team. Um, I would like to tag team with uh, whiplash. And I would like to run from duck because it's like hitting the arena wall over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Which leaves the other one, yeah. I was going to say, I don't think it's even possible to incinerate Duck. Yeah, well, I don't know. It depends. If you start to use magnesium, it is possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then um, last one, we've got Rotator, Kraken, and Hypershock. I think I'd like to tag team uh, with Hypershock. Just because he kind of looks like me sometimes when he has the jaws on. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we both just like driving around real crazy like. Yeah. Uh, I think I would. Uh, well, that sucks. That's a tough one. 
Um, I've never fought rotator, so I'd have to, uh, you know, try to uh, obliterate uh, uh, him. And then, um, you know, Kraken, he was so close last time. I, I had so much fun fighting him. I don't know. That could go either way. I don't really <laughs> have a solid answer on those. Those are, those are hard to answer. It's very well yeah. thought I would have to ponder that. Yes. So we've got one last question here from Mary Catherine Carr. Uh, are you prepared to be the robot king when they take over the world? And what would your first edict be? You mean effort? Yeah, like, yeah, now you're king. You're the robot king of the world. What's uh, what's your first ruling? What's your first okay. decree? <laughs> okay, I got to ask a little bit deeper question. Is it the king of BattleBots? Or is it the king of like Terminator? I'm the I'm the T one thousand of robots. You are the T one thousand of robots. The world is yours. What would be the first thing I would do? Yeah. I would teach it to farm, send it to another planet, and start getting it ready for us. Whoa, that's that's nice. That's really putting it to work and and for the greater good. You're not going yeah. the evil route with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, somebody's got, you know, robots are meant to do the dull and dirty uh, and dangerous work. And that's where all this technology is going. We're still struggling to build a T-1000 that, that, that can tie a shoe and, and um, know the difference between a power line and a, and a tree, right? These are yeah. still cutting edge challenges that, that need to be addressed. But, you know, things like farming, are, are, are one of our biggest challenges. Why? Because we're just not putting enough money at, at being able to do that well. And automation and robotics are there. It just, we can't be cheap about it. And we can't get all of our information, all of our stuff from other countries. We got to build it ourselves. We got to do what Boston Dynamics did for this country, which has led the way in the most advanced, you know, humanoid legged motion things I've ever seen in my life. And we got to have that same kind of mentality to be self-sufficient, um, not because um, we just want to be first at it, but because we have to. We can't we can't expect other people to do these things for us. We um, we really we really got to ask ourselves what we are willing to do towards our young kids and towards. The, the jobs we're laying out for uh, the rest of the country, um, what we are willing to do to make that happen. And that really is about education, how, how far people are really educated and, and how bad things could be if we don't kind of get our together. Um, and so I see both sides of that. You know, I've had a security clearance uh, and I've seen where we sit and the problems that we need to solve. And I don't think about 80% of the people really know how, how tough it is out there for us. We're, we're, we're going to have to double down. And, um, and I hope that the robots and the stuff we build do do some very basic but very useful uh, things to, to, to help humanity. Well, with that, Donald, it is always a joy to talk to someone who you can tell is just doing their calling and you, it really seems like that is, is what you are doing. And so it's been so wonderful to talk to you and, and learn from you. Um, 
over over this uh, this interview. So thank you so so much for for spending this time with us, and we are so excited to see you and and yeah. see what Lockjaw is up to uh, this season. Well, great. Thank you so much for having me. And just know I'm I'm a big fan of what you're doing for the show too. You bring a lot of eyes, and and I think it's good that that that, that people uh, get a lot of these stories. Um, you know from because you can't really get it on camera fast enough, you know, uh, it seems, I think they're aiming that way now, but I just, I just really appreciate what you guys do. You guys should be in the pits. You should be filming the, these interviews on the fly. And, um, and I don't think there's anybody here that wouldn't, uh, in the event that wouldn't just appreciate talking to you. You have great questions. That's, 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 that's my biggest rule. You have great questions. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we travel to San Francisco, where a startup called Tortoise is launching a new delivery robot that is capable of carrying up to 100 pounds. The big thing that sets the tortoise apart? It's not self-driving at all. It's operated entirely by a human driving the robot via remote control. The tortoise robot is shaped like a kid's shopping cart with a big smiling face on the front. It inches along the sidewalk at very slow speeds with a camera for eyes and a human driver many, many miles away. So it's almost as if they had taken the speed of the sloth bot and just put it into a cart and uh i mean yeah so what you're trying to tell me is that this thing is just a shell of an ai delivery bot (laughs) (laughs) nice one i mean it's the okay so here's my problem i guess with, with this thing is all right so it's unmanned right it's a shopping cart essentially uh, and it carries up to 100 pounds of groceries. So it's being driven by someone nowhere within the vicinity. So, and it's going down the sidewalk. Like, can someone just grab the, you know, bag of gushers out from the back and, mm. and take it? Like, well, maybe that's it, the shell locks. It didn't appear mm. that it had any type of uh, cover. 100 pounds. 100 pounds. So if I have 29 watermelons being delivered <laughs> to my house it's just it's gonna have what are they gonna be strapped on there like a like a net this is a common question that comes up whenever robotic delivery happens you know uh the the vision of the future is that um every minute you would look up and see a new amazon drone kind of going down your your street following the sidewalk going to land at your neighbor's house and uh kind of the the question is oh are people going to uh start uh fashioning net guns to shoot drones out of the air and get free televisions and stuff um and i i guess you know like the question too you know for the domino's pizza delivery robots like what's going to stop someone from opening up the side of the robot and Enjoying a delicious pizza, you know, stealing ro- like uh, watermelons out of the back of the poor tortoise. I mean, who knows? We are in uncharted territory. What's going to happen when someone takes a piping hot meat lovers to the face at 35 miles an hour and walks through <laughs> your dog? <laughs> I, I'm going to say, Lindsay, you know, my, my question for you is, uh, who do you think 
would have a better win-loss record at BattleBots? Tortoise or Tortozoid? Uh, I mean, that's easy. Tortozoid is going to win the entirety of BattleBots this season. <laughs> clearly, it would have no issue taking down this flimsy tortoise. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the show should buy one just so we can uh, we can see that. You know, <laughs> out there destroying printers and stuff. Go get a tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> it's so happy looking. And it's it's going to hurt though to watch it get destroyed. Well, that's about it for us today. <laughs> we'll be back in your feed next Wednesday with another mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Have a great week. Bye.